That's Ecclesiastes chapter 7, 15 to 29. I'm reading from the New International Version. In this meaningless world of mine, I have seen both of these. The righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be otherwise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fear God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is snared, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chained. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinners she will ensnare. Look, say the teacher, this is what I have discovered, adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found, God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Michael. Good morning, everyone. I want to give you an update on a few people before we jump in. Let me just open this up. We'll probably spend most of our time this morning. I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. And everybody said? Uh, mumble, 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 mumble. We'll spend about 30 seconds on that verse, because only a fool would dwell there. Um, a couple of updates. Pastor David, uh, his dad lives in South Australia and he went across to visit him and while he was visiting him his dad said, could you take me up to Adelaide? And so he did and David got caught with that recent outbreak so he had to isolate. And coming back from South Australia now, he's still in New South Wales, he's spending 14 days outside of Adelaide so travelling back and isolating, you know, as he goes. He was at Coonabarabran Yesterday, spending three days or so there, and you know, three days in Broken Hill, and three days here, and three days there, and I mean, what a blessing! All that time in New South Wales would be fantastic. Notice I am wearing a ridiculous colour shirt this morning. God sends these things to humble us and to teach us lessons. Um, that's Pastor David. I also wanted to update because some of you all know this lady, Bronwyn Webb. Bronwyn goes to the 8.30 service and Bronwyn has had an MRI just recently. She has cancer. 
when the, and the MRI showed that there were no tumours in her brain at all, and they haven't been any for 12 months, which is good. But it also showed that the cancer has spread to other organs in her body, and she's been given a limited time to live, three to six months. So she's well in herself, her faith is strong, and her husband John says, when you have faith and you know where you're going, it makes all the difference. And that's very true. But continue to pray for Bronwyn and for uh, John. And then on Saturday night, Friday night, Friday night, there was a massive accident. I don't know if you heard about it on the news, but the police were chasing about this guy stole a car and it was on Gaza Road heading where, whichever way and the police put up blockages and everything else and Robert, their oldest son, was driving and the guy in front of him saw the police cars zooming past and the blockages and so he braked suddenly and Robert ran into the back of him and the guy behind him ran into the back of him and nine cars ran into the back of each other and so it was a very sudden stopping. It's a pretty significant accident so... Robert's also, you know, recovering from the shock of all of that. We live in a fallen world, don't we, where things go wrong. And that's certainly what the book of Ecclesiastes is reminding us of. It's a taste of reality. So I'm going to pray and ask that God would speak to us in the midst of it all. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be together. Thanks for your word. We acknowledge, Lord, that without your special revelation, life would continue to be an absolute mystery. We can't figure it out by ourselves. But you have revealed it to us, that you're the one in control, that you're the one at work, and that one day you will end this fallen world and you will institute a new creation in which only righteousness will dwell. Lord, we look forward to that time, but in the meantime, help us to live in a way that pleases you, that honours you, that cooperates with your work and will. Speak to us this morning, we pray, in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. How to live in a fallen world is what I've called these three, four chapters. We're doing the end of chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. (gasps) Ready? It's going to be a race. There's six pages in this Bible that I have in front of me. And so let me give a plug for Right Now Media. And if you go on there, they have a thing called Bible Project. And if you click on that, then it'll take you to these magnificent drawings. You'll actually watch this guy draw like a cartoon. And he'll draw an outline of a book. And he'll do that for all the books in the Bible. So click on the Ecclesiastes one and you can watch an overview of the book of Ecclesiastes in about 10 minutes, 6 to 10 minutes, something like that, okay? Now, I haven't done it. I should have done it before I told you it. I've done it for other books, but I've stayed away from it for Ecclesiastes because different people have different views, so I'm not sure if they've taken the typical view, which is one of a, more of a pessimistic view than what I take on the book of Ecclesiastes. So, tell you what, I'll watch it this week and then... Next week, I'll come back and withdraw that recommendation. How about that? Different people live in this world, this fallen, broken world, and some people are idealists. Some people, you know, they're upbeat and they live in the dream and they just deny the bad stuff. Some people are pessimists. Everything is bad. They're the Eeyores of the, uh, of the world. And then there are people who are sort of like in between. They're a bit of both. They're realists. 
There are good things, enjoy it. There are bad things, and that's sad and grieve over it. Chuck Colson made this comment. Life is not like a book. Life is a mess. It's not logical. It's not sensible. It's not orderly. Um, certainly not all of the time. And our belief, our theology, must be lived out in the midst of that mess. We follow God in the midst of this followers. Life is a mess and it is unfair. Solomon jumps in at verse 15 and says, In this meaningless life of mine I have seen both of these. I've seen the righteous perishing in their righteousness and I've seen the wicked living long in their wickedness. What's going on? The good people are dying when they should be living longer and the bad people are living when they should be dying. I've seen these contradictions and these mysteries in all of my life. And there are, that dilemma is still with us today and there are different views of how people cope with it. Excuse me, I just dribbled. Can't even drink properly. It's a fallen world, things happen. <laughs> Atheism, people say that there is no God. Um, um, denying the reality of God or even saying to God, no, God, I don't want you in my life. They acknowledge that evil is real. Life's an accident, it's a fluke, it's a mistake, something like that. There are no absolutes, it's all relative. You know, do what you like. There are no consequences, that's atheism. Then there is a thing called agnosticism, which is where people believe that God is real, but they don't know God. They, they can't know God. I don't know. Is there a God? Is there not a God? The Latin for agnostic is ignoramus. People will say, I'm an agnostic. You never hear people say, I'm an ignoramus. <laughs> hmm, why haven't? Um, they go looking for the evidence, but they can never find it. And so it then tends to lead to a degeneration into, well, I don't want to miss out. What if there's not a God and then I'm going to miss out on all the pleasures and fun of life? So they end up indulging and end up being a little bit pessimistic and fatalistic. Deism is that God is absent, that God is not a person. He's a force or he's a cause or something like that. It's associated with that is that, you know, God wound up the world a long time ago and he let it go and now God's gone. He's not here. Or God is powerless. He's... He wants to fix it, but he can't. He just feels sorry for everybody, but he can't do anything about it. It's out of his control, deism. That's how they explain all of these, acknowledge evil is real. How could it be here? What, what's going on? Then there is spiritual idealism. This is like some forms of Christianity or other religions. Um, it's like Job's friends, that evil is real. But if you're a believer in God and if you are fully obedient to him, then evil won't come near you. It'll, in fact, protect you. Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. Therefore, if you believe uh, you'll never get sick, you'll never had bad things happen to you or whatever else, one day you will die like everybody else. They don't know what from because they never get sick. Um, you know, it's the name it and claim it people, the people who say you've got to make a positive confession Never make a negative confession, because if you make a negative confession, you're actually bringing that stuff upon you. You know, it's, oh, I don't feel well, I feel a bit sick. It's like, don't say that. Now you will get sick. As I said to the 8.30 congregation, then I'd like to know what they would do if somebody says, I'll be a monkey's uncle. What's going to happen then? <laughs> Thanks, Donna, appreciate that. Then there is biblical realism. Biblical realism is saying God is real, but so is evil. Both are real. 
And how they interact in this world, well, it's partly a mystery. We have some causes, some reasons, uh, some things that we can say about it. For instance, there is an evil one who is evil itself and his demons and they intend to hurt and harm and destroy. They're at work in this world. Not the only reason. Mankind is also sinful and selfish and foolish. We have free will and we make dumb choices and we, because of our selfishness, we do things that please us and that might hurt others. Or sometimes we hurt others and some people enjoy doing that. And then, of course, the Creator has given us natural laws. There are earthquakes and there are tornadoes and there are disasters in this world. And all of this is a result of being in a fallen world. That's what it's an acknowledgement of. Um, and there is a way for us to live in the midst of this. And I think uh, Solomon is saying to us, love God intensely, but don't deny reality. It's both of those dimensions. So in verse 16, he says, don't be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Don't be over-wicked and don't be a fool. Why die before your time? It's good to grasp the one without letting go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. What's he saying? He is not saying, be a little bit righteous, be a little bit wicked, do a little bit of both, right? That's how you survive. He's not saying that. He's not saying... Be a little bit righteous, you know, read your Bible but don't take it too seriously or pray but don't pray every day or come to church but for goodness sake don't come every week. Like you're being over-righteous. He doesn't mean that. What he's talking about is don't be overly self-righteous. Don't brag and boast that you are righteous like the Pharisees did. Don't be like that. Don't be overly self-righteous. Don't be over-righteous. And don't be over-wise. Don't go bragging about your wisdom and how much you know and everything else, nor be overly wicked about bad things that you do. That's like, avoid those extremes. And in the midst of it, in verse 18, it's fear God. Love God intensely and don't deny reality. He goes on to say in verse uh, 19, wisdom makes one person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. When he talks about wisdom, as he often does in Ecclesiastes and the book of Proverbs, wisdom is contrasted with foolishness. A wise person is not just a person who has knowledge about the way things work in the world. A wise person is a person who lives with the awareness that God is real, that God is watching, and they live their life as under his authority. That's the way of wisdom. The way of fools is to live without God, to reject God, to have nothing to do with God, to look at life only under the sun, this life only. The way of wisdom, of living with God, loving God intensely, makes you far more powerful or significant than the rulers of ten people. He then goes on to say in verse 20, a key verse, this is one of the key reasons why there is evil in our world. There is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. There's not one of us. Why does that drip? He, um, the only one person that you, we know of, of course, is the Lord Jesus. He never sinned. But we are all sinners. This evil nature, which permeates our world, is in us. What's wrong with the world? I am. What's wrong with the world? You are. 
and he's acknowledging that because this is a fallen, broken world and we are part of the problem, that's why we need Jesus to cleanse us. That's why Jesus is going to come and take us out of this fallen world and make a new world eventually. Evil will end. It will stop. But not until God allows that to happen. He then goes on to give us three or four ways of, okay, we are sinners and we live in this fallen world. How are we to live? And he says these few things. In the end of chapter 7, he talks about... Um, Remember that when you listen to others and remember that when you speak. Um, verse 21, don't pay attention to every word that people say or you may hear your servant cursing you. Take it with a grain of salt. People are not perfect. People are sinners. They say things that sometimes can be hurtful, that are wrong, that are cruel. And sometimes people pass on things, we gossip. And then he says, verse 22, for you know in your own heart that many times you yourself have done the same thing. You've cursed. We are broken. We are sinners. Remember that in the way you speak to people and when you are listening to other people. You heard of a lady called Karen Carpenter? Karen Carpenter was a country and western singer, or a country singer, and as Mark Rain told me to say, she has um, probably had the best voice in our generation. Mark's a country nut. Karen Carpenter died at the age of 32. Do you know Karen Carpenter? Anorexia nervosa? 32. It's young, isn't it? Do you know what started it? She and her brother Richard released a song. I can't remember the name of the song. But the reviewer who wrote a review on the song made the comment that Richard's chubby sister, yada, 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 Richard's chubby sister, those words cut. And she couldn't get it out of her mind and she went on diets to lose weight and then it went to the extreme of Enerosa. Nervosa, anorexia nervosa, 32. Be careful of the things you say, be careful of the things you hear, Solomon says. Um, I don't think I read this to the first service, but the Minnesota Crime Commission uh, wrote, wrote this upon their investigations. It sounds terrible, but just listen to it because it's true. All babies start life as a little savage. Completely selfish and self-centred, they wrote it in the masculine singular. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, mum's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch. Deny any of these and he sees with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous if he were not so helpless. If permitted to continue in the self-centred world of his infancy, given free reign to his impulsive actions to satisfy his wants, every child will grow up a criminal, a thief and a killer. It's lovely, isn't it? But it's a statement of reality. Our kids are sinful. And they are self-centred. And they, in their innocence, they don't hide it. What we do is train them to be polite and nice and to share. But left to ourselves, and it breaks out every now and again, as I think we said last week about retaliation. We, it's our sinful nature. Don't poke the bear because the bear might scratch. Remember this when you study. Uh, Solomon had taken himself on a whole uh, exploration of life's experience and he basically says in those verses, 23 to 25, that um, I was determined to be wise. I wanted to find out the answers and mysteries to life, but I eventually found out that it's not in me. I can't do it. 
We missed, life is a mystery without special revelation. It doesn't come by our observation. It doesn't come from our investigations. They help a little, but only a little. Life still ends up this huge mystery to us unless God reveals it to us, and he has in the scriptures. He's told us exactly what we need to know. He's told us enough of what we need to know. And then finally, remember this in your relationships, verses 26 to 29. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap. He's talking about um, a, a prostitute, a sexual encounter, and how people can't get in the grip of that. But the man who fears God, the man who pleases God, will escape those sorts of problems. And that's when he, in that context, he then says, adding one thing to another and trying to discover the scheme of things, this is what I found. I found one man of a thousand to be righteous, and I haven't found one woman to be like that. He's not down on women. He's just simply giving his experience and his findings. Of a thousand men, I found one who was fair, who was just, who was a good friend, a good confidant. What I found is a lot of people who are unfaithful, unreliable, who hurt you, who are disloyal to you. And he said, and I haven't found a woman who is like that yet. He's not saying women are like that. He's saying, I haven't found one yet. And so he's basically still talking about we are all sinners. We're all broken. Um, verse 29, this only have I found. God made humankind, mankind upright. But we've gone in search of many schemes. God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and they were upright, righteous, without sin. But they sinned, they rebelled. And then they're removed from the garden and since then we've been inventing and finding and going in search of all other sorts of things to bring satisfaction to our life. Um, and the problem is, in all of our relationships and all of our talking to one another and, and, and so on, in all of our endeavours, we are fallen, broken people and we can forget it when it needs to be a filter that we see life through. There are these people who are called perfectionists. Are you a perfectionist? If you are a perfectionist, let me say this to you. Just three quick things. Number one, may God bless you. <laughs> number two, may God help you. And number three, and may God help anyone who lives with you. <laughs> because you want everyone and everything to be perfect. But we live in an imperfect fallen world and we are not perfect. So there is a level of frustration. There is a level of disappointment in others. Love God intensely. Don't deny reality. We live in this fallen, broken world. That's chapter 7. Chapter 8. We are citizens of two kingdoms. Solomon goes on to talk about, remember, he's the king, and he goes on to talk about how we should behave towards the king. Verse 2, obey the king's commands because you took an oath before God. Don't be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Don't stand up for a bad cause because he do whatever he wants anyway, the king. It's a different form of government, a king, a monarchy. We don't live technically under a monarchy, but the king is the final word. He has the final authority. Verse 5, whoever obeys his commands will come to no harm. The wise in heart know the proper way and the proper time to do things. Um, yeah, <clears throat> The king is supreme. What should we do? Well, we're part of two kingdoms. As followers of God, we live in this fallen world, and God has given us three institutions. He's given us... Uh, marriage, he's given us, and associated with that, the family and government 
and then in the New Testament, the church. These institutions God has given us, particularly the first three, marriage, family, government, God has given us in order to have order and some control in the world. Government is not the solution to our fallenness, but it is a constraint upon our fallenness. They're God's servants to help live in a fallen, broken world. And without that authority structure, it would be anarchy because we are innately sinful, selfish, broken. So government is not the remedy. So what we should do as believers in the Lord Jesus is submit to the government, whether it's good or bad, because God ultimately is in control. Even when it's bad, China, there's a country which I think of shocking form of government, which is incredibly abusive. What's the church doing in China? Exploding. How come? Because God is in control and God is at work and he'll achieve his purposes. When the New Testament was written and the book of Romans chapter 13 and Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, they talk about, you know, submit to the government. Fear God, but submit and obey the government. Guess who the emperor was? Nero. A bad dude. Your role is to submit to the government. Of course, assuming the government is not doing unbiblical, ungodly things. Where they are doing that, then we have the right to object and to oppose. We don't have the right to overthrow them. We can certainly pray that God will remove them. Um, and you have, we have examples of that in Exodus 1 and Daniel and the book of Acts and so on. We obey God first and then in obeying God we submit to the government as best we possibly can. Solomon goes on and says in chapter 8 verses 10 to 13 um, tried to apply my mind to everything and then I saw the wicked buried. Those who used to come and go to the holy place and who received praise in the city when they did this. That too is meaningless. He's referring to the fact that you probably are aware of that people live without God, live lives that dishonour God and when they die, they go to heaven. That's what it says at their funeral. We probably don't have time for this but I know the story of a, two criminals. They were shocking men. One of them died. And the other one went to the priest, to the minister who was going to be conducting the funeral. And he said to the minister, I'll give you $10,000 if in the funeral, in a couple of days, if you can say to the people who gather together that he was a saint. The minister took it. Thought about what he would say when the time for the funeral came. He said, this man who died was a rogue, he's a criminal, he's a thief, he's a rip-off merchant. He's one of the worst people in the world to have known, but compared to his brother, he's a saint. <laughs> anyway, Solomon was observing that sort of thing in life. Verse 11, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. You see? It's in us. And if there's no outward control or quick um, response of justice, we have a tendency to continue to go astray. Although a wicked person, verse 12, commits a hundred crimes, they may live a long time. But I know that it'll go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked don't fear God, it will not go well with them, for their days will not lengthen like a shadow. It's one of these meaningless things that we observe in life. Uh, death is coming to all of us, but there is another court that we will face, regardless of what happens in this world. 
whether you see justice or not, you will eventually. God will make sure that it comes about, but it may not be in your lifetime. No form of government is perfect, verse 14. Verse 15, make the best you can of the circumstances that you are in. Verses 16 and 17 in chapter 8. Uh, uh, God is working behind the scenes. I've already said some of those, and he says these sorts of things a couple of times. Chapter 9. He's going to spend the first part of chapter 9 talking about death, and then he's going to go into, in the midst of this fallen world and that we're headed for death, how shall we live? That's chapter 9. So let's have a quick look at that. You can't change when you will die, but you can change how you will live. That's the choice. Verses 1 to 6, he emphasises the truth. We all die. It's certain. It's coming. And we all know that. That They've done surveys. One out of one people die. People are dying now who have never died before. (laughs) You are priceless. I'm here till Friday. <laughs> no, no. Um, we all die. We're all in transit from this world to the next. It's a bit like we're at the airport and we're going to get on a plane and we're headed for another destination. This world is like that airport. Don't get too concerned about cleaning the toilets at the airport. This is not going to be a good illustration. You should do what you can in this world. You should be... Don't focus here, is what I'm badly trying to say. Focus, live your life in such a way here that the destination is going to be magnificent. I think I said last week, when you came into the world, um, you were in pain uh, and cried, but the people around you rejoiced. Live your life in such a way that when you go out, You will rejoice when the people around you will be the ones who cry. They will miss you. Live your life for God. Love him intensely, but don't deny reality. Um, We can't change the fact that we are going to die, but we can change the way that we die. That's an option for us because it's determined by how we live, which is where Solomon goes then. Verse 7, he gives us four quick things, and I'll go quickly through these. Number one, verse 7, he says, enjoy your meals. Get on with living. Enjoy your life as best you can. Enjoy what God gives you. When you go home for lunch today, enjoy it. When you have a nice cool drink of whatever it is, or a nice hot cup of tea, enjoy it. These are the blessings that God is giving us, and he wants you to enjoy it. Make your life count. Make your years count. 1 Corinthians 10.31, therefore, what what. Whether you eat, whatever you eat, or whether you drink, whatever you drink, do all to the glory of God. Every part of life, enjoy your meals. Number two, I need to read you this, verse verse 8. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. One. Oh, two. This is a very godly congregation. Three. We only had one. Close, close, but no, you've got writing on your shirt, so that doesn't count. What does he mean, always wear white? Where do you wear white? Where do you see someone wearing white? Andrew Lynch said this morning, cricket? (laughs) Uh, No. A wedding. Always wear white is 
you would get dressed up and they would wear white to their special occasions. And that's what he's talking about. Celebrate and enjoy the special occasions of life. Whether it's your marriage, whether it's a birthday, or whether it's a significant event, celebrate your life. Enjoy what God gives you. Enjoy the daily routines. Life can be tough. And life can be disappointing. So enjoy the good times when they come. They won't be there all the time, but when they are there, celebrate them. Enjoy them. Enjoy your marriage. Not grudgingly putting up with one another. Marriage needs maintenance, and we're discovering a lot of people are not maintaining their marriage. It's not automatic. Things have a tendency to degenerate. Everything has a tendency to degenerate. So marriage is something you have to work at. And I suggested to the 8.30 congregation, you should have a daily chat, a weekly date, a monthly special, and an annual holiday. A daily chat, a weekly date, a monthly special, and an annual holiday. Chat every day. Every week, do something together. It could be go for a walk. It could be just sit out the back and do something special. Or work in the garden. Whatever it is, do it together. Once a month, do something extra special. Go for a longer walk in the bush. Go to the beach. Go to the cinema. Go to a restaurant. Whatever it is, whatever floats your boat. But do it together. And then every year, have a holiday. Be Christ-centred, be committed, communicate and be kind to one another and share. This was beautifully illustrated at McDonald's just recently when an older couple in their 80s, married for about 60 years, were found to be sitting together and sharing beautifully. The people watching them were just amazed at how gracious she was because they'd ordered their meal and he was eating his and she sat there quietly and submissively waiting for him to finish. That's living. Somebody observing that went up to them to admire, to express how remarkable it was to watch them and the way they shared and interacted together and how she was just waiting for him to finish her meal before she ate, ate hers. And she said, no, 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 it's his turn to use the teeth first. <laughs> That's marriage. <laughs> Enjoy it. <laughs> Enjoy your work. Enjoy your career that God is giving you. And he says, do it with all your might. Chapter 9, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do it, do it with all your might because you're dying. And when you go there, you won't be doing any of it. So enjoy it now. Billy Sunday said, if you have no joy in your work, there must be a leak somewhere in your Christianity. So live your life centred on Christ, loving God intensely in this world, but not denying reality, but living under his rule seeking to live and please, honour and please him. As somebody has said, we live our life with one foot on a banana peel and one foot in the grave. Make sure that when you slip on the banana peel and you end up in the grave, that you will end up in the grave on Christ's side, not on the side without Christ. Death is coming. Death is certain. You can't stop it. So prepare for it. And the way to prepare for it is to live this way in this world. So how should we live? In chapter 10, he goes on to describe how not to live and he's going to contrast wisdom, the way of wisdom which we've been talking about and he has in those chapters, to the way of folly, foolishness of, like I said before, those people who choose to live without God of rejecting him and go their own way and live for the short term and don't live for consequences. A man from the city wanted to be a farmer, so he wanted to be a chicken farmer, so he went and bought 200 chicks and he got his piece of land and he bought the chicks and he took them to the farm and after a little while the chicks died. 
So he bought 200 more chicks and tried it again. And they died. And so he rang the Department of Agriculture, trying to figure out whether there was something wrong with the property or the land or something. He said, listen, I bought 200 chicks. Am I planting them too close or am I planting them too deep? <laughs> Foolishness. Some people live for the short term. I'm going to have to get you to sit down in the back or something. It's quite distracting. 173 times in Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and in Solomon's writings particularly, he talks about fools and foolishness and folly. It's the opposite of wisdom. It's not an intellectual thing. It's not a silly thing. It's a moral thing. It's living without God. Foolishness. And he says, number one, don't give in to temptation. That's in verse one. Take some time to think about it, but as a dead fly gives perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honour. Got a vat of perfume, of uh, sap from trees and whatever else, and you're adding uh, other things to it to make it a beautiful, pleasant perfume. And if a fly gets into it and dies, that decaying fly is enough to change the, what's going on chemically and it gives off a stench, not an odour. Here is a lot of perfume and one little insect, one little incident changes it. That's what he's saying. You can live your life of wisdom as under God, but if you give in to temptation and you just give in once, it can ruin you. Bill Clinton, it can ruin you. Barnaby Joyce. And you could have a whole list of preachers as well and other sorts of people. It's one little misdemeanor. People no longer remember you for what you did that was good. They'll remember you for what you did that was bad. King David. Hmm. Martin Luther said, you, can st you can't stop the birds flying over your head. That's the temptations. But you can stop them landing in your hair and making a nest there. Don't give in to temptation. We are tempted every day. And if you do, it could ruin you. That's what he's talking about. Don't live without God, verses 2 and 3. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Let's just find out who's left-handed. <clears throat> Only one. Two. Fools. That's not what he means. It's a metaphor in the ancient world. The right hand is the most common hand. It's the hand of strength. It's the hand of honour. It's the hand that is reliable. So the opposite of that, the left hand is perceived to be the one that is unreliable, the one that is weaker, and so on. So the heart of the wise inclines to the right, to strength and to honour and to reliability. The heart of the fool inclines to the left, to foolishness and unreliability and weakness. That's what he means. So it's okay to be left-handed, just don't be... I guess if you're a left-handed fool, that would really be double, wouldn't it? Anyway, moving on. Don't live without God in the midst of that. Put God in your life and um, don't take a misstep. This is really about the, a life, it's not a misstep, but it's more like a path of missteps. That's the fool inclining to the left of living their life without God. It's foolishness. Don't react in temper. In fact, don't react, always respond. That's the way of wisdom. But we all slip up, we all get things wrong. Um, and he talks about, sometimes you'll see slaves on horses and princes walking on the road. You'll see incompetent people in wrong places. 
be it the boss at work or be politicians in power, you'll see incompetence at high levels. Well, don't be frustrated by that, but rather look to God. He is still the one who is in control and he is at work and don't quit. Don't say, well, I'm out. I've had enough of this, I give up. Rather, work out your purposes. And then, of course, watch your tongue. Be careful in how you speak about and to others. So Winston Churchill is a man with a very sharp wit. And another lady, another person, Lady Astor, who was a member of Parliament, they used to lock horns every now and again. She couldn't stand him. And she would say to him in a public arena, a public statement, So Winston, if you were my husband, I would poison your tea. I'd put arsenic in it. To which he said, Madam, if you were my husband, I'd drink it. Oh, what did I say? No wonder. (laughs) On another occasion, he he drank too much and he was drunk. And she said again publicly, Sir Winston, you're drunk. To which he said, Bessie, you're ugly. (laughs) Tomorrow morning, I'll be sober. Think about it. One of the reasons we find those funny, and I find those funny, is our own sinful nature. We like the smart retort, we like to retaliate, we like to say some things back to protect ourselves or whatever. But usually it's not wise. Don't react in temper, and then don't live without preparation. Verse 10. If the axe is dull and the edge is unsharpened, then more strength is needed. But skill will bring success. Sharpen the axe regularly. Be prepared. Don't live life without preparation. Don't be haphazard. He talks then about different occupations. He gives four of them. And he says that we are to live, think ahead, plan, strategize. Talk to God about it. Ask for godly counsel. But be flexible. We live in a fallen world where things go wrong. So don't give in to temptation. Don't live without God. Don't react in temper and don't live without preparation in order for you to enjoy that life. And then he goes on to talk about words that we can use inappropriately. Don't ramble on and on and become a know-it-all, he says um, in verses, what is it, 13 and following, 14 and 15. In 16, he says, don't live only to receive. Um, Again, he's talking about the mouth and people feasting and just feeding themselves and indulging and not getting on and doing their job and so on. But if you live your life to take things in and not give out, then he says it will ruin you. It will consume you. That's not how God has designed us and that's not how we are to live. We are to live as people who receive gratefully and who give generously to others. That's to flow through us. Like the Jordan River flows through the uh, Sea of Galilee and it is a a beautiful, lush area. So that same Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea and it doesn't flow out. It just flows into and it's dead. It's lifeless. So too with the way we live our life. Don't live only to receive, but live to give to God's honour and glory. And don't badmouth others. Don't malign them, he says in verse 20. Don't revile the king even in your thoughts or curse the rich in your bedroom. Look at this. 
Because a bird in the sky may carry your words and a bird on the wing may report what you say. My mum used to quote that. How do you know that, mum? She would say, a little bird told me. That's where it comes from. Begins in the mind, we think something, we're upset with somebody or we think something bad about somebody or we suspect it, we think it. Before very long, we're going to verbalise it to someone who is a significant other for us, a trusted friend, a confidant, and we want them to keep it in confidence. But like we said before, there's not one in a thousand that's we're all sinners and we're unreliable. And so that significant other has other significant others and that one will tell that one and that one has a significant other, they tell that one. And of course, in the church, we do it for prayer. Please pray about this person, God's going on. But what Solomon is saying... Don't badmouth others. And the trouble is not just the bad-mouthing, the open mouth, but the trouble is that we are open ear, that we receive it. And if that's happening, then what we should do is you should ask some questions. Why are you telling me? Why do you want me to know that? Where did you get the information? Have you gone to the person directly? Have you confirmed it? Have you checked the facts? Or if you really want to stop it, simply say to them, can I quote you? And then go tell the person. Don't badmouth others, he says. That's not the way for us to live in this world. So here is the summary. Life on earth is a mess. Love God intensely, but don't deny reality. We're all sinners. We're all broken. Some more so than others, but all of us are infected with the virus of sin. And the only cure is the Lord Jesus. We are citizens of two kingdoms as we follow the Lord Jesus in this world. Death is coming to all. Uh, he's told us how we should live and he's told us how we should not live. Um, and so therefore, let's pray. Once again, Father, we acknowledge that you are the sovereign God. You're in control. You're very patient but you have a plan and you have purposes and you're working them out and you're working in us. Help us to learn, Lord, from this portion of your word how to live and how not to live. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength and not to deny the reality of this fallen, hurting world. Give us your grace and help us to be gracious to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and sing our last song.